Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Grenier, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Writ Podcast. We're at the height of the summer, uh, when politics usually takes a break, but not this year. Uh, We've had federal leaders that are already crisscrossing the country ahead of what's expected to be an election that will be taking place across Canada. But there's also an election happening right now in Nova Scotia, a provincial election that will be held on August 17th. So let's start there. What I wanted to talk about for the Nova Scotia election is is some of the storylines that are involved with the candidates that we've seen put their names forward, or in one case, uh, take their name off the ballot. This was Robin Ingraham in Dartmouth South. She was a liberal candidate who withdrew from the race on the first day of the election. She claimed it was because of mental health issues, but then it was subsequently revealed that she was more or less requested to resign by the Liberal Party because of some so-called boudoir photos that had come out that she had taken uh, earlier on. She, in the end, decided that blaming uh, mental health for her reasons of getting out of the race was not a fair thing to do. Now the Liberals are defending themselves for forcing this candidate more or less to step aside for something that is not illegal or there's nothing particularly wrong with it. Uh, And uh, that was not a great way for the Liberal Party to start the campaign. But on the more positive side, we are seeing that uh, there's lots of women running in the Nova Scotia provincial election. The CBC was reporting uh, uh, just this week uh, that three ridings on the south shore of Nova Scotia have all women's slates. And from what I could tell, there might be a few other ridings that uh, all the candidates from the major parties are women, so meaning that uh, they will elect uh, a female MLA to the legislature. What's notable here is that the New Democrats, out of 55 ridings across Nova Scotia, they're running 31 women and four candidates who identify as gender diverse. The PCs are running 19 women and the Liberals 21. Now, the slates aren't finalized. That will take place on Wednesday, so we could see uh, some shifts in those numbers. But uh, that is a pretty impressive take because in the last election in 2017, the New Democrats had the most women, but it wasn't uh, a majority. And the PCs and the Liberals, uh, the Liberals were running 12 women. The PCs ran 17 last time. So this is an improvement. Another riding to focus in on is the riding of Preston. Nova Scotia has a few ridings that are called protected ridings. The ridings that have smaller populations than would normally be the case in order to ensure uh, representation for minority groups. So there's a few ridings that are meant to uh, be Acadian ridings that have uh, those of Acadian descent or who are French-speaking. There's a few of those. And then there's Preston, which is meant to be uh, a riding for the black population in Nova Scotia. And what's really interesting about the race in Preston this time is that for the first time, the candidates for the Liberals, the PCs, and the New Democrats are all black. So they will have uh, a black representative for the riding of Preston, which something that they haven't had for some time. This is Angela Simmons for the Liberals, Coulter Simmons for the NDP, and Archie Beals for the PCs are the candidates there. So uh, that's really uh, an interesting thing to see because Preston, in the old map, had been attached to another riding. But uh, the new map that the uh, province is using this time has these protected ridings for Uh, the black community, and also for the Acadian community in Nova Scotia. So that's a a really interesting thing to see. And if you are getting into the Nova Scotia provincial election campaign, uh, good news, the leaders' debate is going to be taking place on Wednesday evening. So that's something to tune in. But while we're talking about Atlantic Canada, it's an area that has been getting a little bit of love from the federal leaders over the last few days. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, he has been swinging through Atlantic Canada. He also stopped in Miramichi. 
Uh, Miramichi Grand Lake is the riding in uh, New Brunswick uh, there uh, that includes the town of Miramichi. And it was a very close race last time. Pat Finnegan, the Liberal MP, is not running for re-election. So the Liberals have Lisa Harris, who is a provincial, former provincial cabinet minister, running for the Liberals. And the Conservatives had Jake Stewart, a former PC cabinet minister, running for them. So uh, a bit of a high-profile race. Maybe not too much of a shock that Justin Trudeau decided to make a little bit of a stop in Miramichi on his way uh, to other places in uh, Atlantic Canada, and that's include Moncton and Charlottetown, where uh, it, the Trudeau is making an announcement with uh, the premier there. He wasn't the only leader taking a stop in Atlantic Canada. Aaron O'Toole went to St. John's. Uh, he announced there a fund that protects against revenue shocks to provinces, sort of the same thing he has promised to Alberta when it comes to equalization, a, a rebate for equalization. Uh, my question here for Aaron O'Toole, is this the last time we'll see him in Newfoundland and Labrador ahead of election day? The Conservatives haven't held a seat in, in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador for quite some time. And uh, the polls aren't suggesting that the uh, Conservatives are likely to win a seat in uh, Newfoundland anytime soon. So will this be his one and done stop? in the province uh, for this summer? We'll have to wait and see. You could ask the same question for Justin Trudeau in Charlottetown going to Prince Edward Island. Is he going to spend time during the upcoming campaign, assuming it goes ahead, by making a, a pit stop in PEI? Maybe he would have earlier on in the uh, in the year if we were setting the schedule, the calendar for an election campaign. But uh, now with what's happening with the Greens, maybe the Liberals aren't too concerned with what's happening in Prince Edward Island. They hold all four seats there. But while we're talking about the Greens... Last week on the podcast, I said how Annamie Paul's leadership turmoil seemed to be behind her, and that just maybe she was uh, going to put it past her and be able to focus on the election campaign. Well, within a few hours, that turned out to be not true. Uh, so what had happened, just to briefly go over it, the Federal Council of the Green Party was um, organizing to hold a, a non-confidence vote on Annamie Paul's leadership that, if it had passed, would then go to the members. They were also doing a membership review of Annamie Paul, that if they found that she shouldn't be a member, then she couldn't be the leader. It was announced uh, by Annamie Paul and the party that uh, those things were not going to go ahead. And as it seemed when I spoke uh, last week, everything seemed like it was, uh, they were, everybody was ready to move on. Well, they weren't. Uh, it turns out that what had happened is that Annamie Paul had put forward um, legal measures to try to stop these things from happening. It went to arbitration. The arbitrator found in her favor but now the Green Party is contesting the findings of the arbitrator, so this isn't uh, done just yet. So I'm not going to say what's going to happen next, whether we're going to have more of this going on for the Green Party or not. I won't make the same mistake I made last week, so I guess it's just stay tuned. For the polls of the week, uh, we've actually had quite a few polls this past week at the federal level, and there was four of them that I wanted to highlight. Now, these were all done between July 14th and July 21st, so they're all pretty fresh. They were done by Leger, Ipsos for Global News, Ecos Research, and the Innovative Research Group in a poll they did for McLean's. These polls all show similar numbers. They're not identical. Um, the Liberals for uh, the Leger, Ipsos, and Ecos polls had between 34 and 36% support, and the Conservatives had between 28 and 30%, the NDP between 19 and 22%. So those are all pretty much in the same ballpark. The Innovative poll gave the Liberals 41% and the Conservatives 27%. That is a much bigger gap 
Um, it was a smaller sample poll, and Innovative tends to have better numbers for the Liberals than some of the other pollsters, so I wouldn't read too much into it. One thing to note, you know, talking about the Greens earlier, Leger had the Greens at 4%, Ipsos at 3%, and both Ecos and Innovative had them at 5%. That's not very good for the Greens. They had over 6% of the vote in the last election. So it does seem that everything that's been happening with Annemie Paul is having an impact on her party support. But in terms of the trend line, not really clear what's going on here. If you compare it to when Leger, Ipsos, and Ecos were all in the field back in June, there's not really much of a change. No change for the Liberals in two of the polls, down two points in one of them. Two of the polls have the Conservatives up a little bit. One of them has them down. The NDP seems to be either holding or gaining a little bit. I think that overall what you can take from these polls is that the numbers that we saw in some surveys back in June that gave the Liberals a 10-point lead or more, maybe that's not the case. It might be getting a little bit tighter, but all of these numbers would point to a Liberal minority government again. Remember, they lost popular vote by a point last time, and in all of these polls, they're ahead by at least five points. Whether they could be at a majority government with these kinds of numbers could be based on the splits, but I think if you're looking at this, the Liberals are now in a position where if the campaign goes well, they can easily get to a majority government, but if the campaign doesn't go well for them, they could drop down to a narrow minority, maybe even drop behind the Conservatives. Uh, none of these polls have the Conservatives really in danger of being overtaken by the NDP, which we had seen in some of the polls in, in, in June. So maybe it's a bit more of a status quo before the recent shifts in the numbers we had seen uh, at the end of the spring. So uh, some interesting numbers that suggest that the Liberals still have every reason to go to an election because they are leading in the polls. Justin Trudeau is much more popular than Aaron O'Toole. But the idea that they're certain to get a majority, these numbers do not make it certain whatsoever. Speaking of a certain majority, let's take a look at a poll that came out of Nova Scotia. This was done by Main Street Research for iPolitics. Uh, of the Nova Scotia provincial election campaign. This is the first poll we've seen from that campaign, uh, from that province, since the beginning of June, the end of May. So this was our first indication of where things are going now that the red has dropped and the campaign is on. Uh, this poll was done on July 21st and July 22nd and uh, surveyed 607 Nova Scotians, which isn't a huge amount of people, but uh, beggars can't be choosers with this. The polls suggested that of decided and leaning voters, the Liberals had 42% support, followed by the Progressive Conservatives at 30%, the New Democrats at 22%, and the Greens at 4%. Now, compared to the 2017 election, this is a gain of three points for the Liberals and a drop of six for the PCs. Um, so a widening gap. The Liberals were able to make uh, the numbers work in their favor for majority government last time, so with a wider gap this time, it would suggest that they're on track for a bigger majority than they won four years ago. Of note, though, 24% of respondents said they were undecided, and 13% weren't leaning in one direction or the other. So that's a, a sizable chunk of the electorate that could shift things. What's really interesting about this poll is how it broke down regionally. In the Halifax area, the Liberals were leading uh, by 12 points over the New Democrats in the mainland of Nova Scotia outside of Halifax, it was a close race between the Liberals and the Conservatives at 40% to 38%. But those numbers are really not different from where they were in the last election. And considering the sample sizes, we can't say definitively one way or the other that there's been a move some in the polls or in support in either Halifax or the rest of mainland Nova Scotia. But in Cape Breton, the Liberals were leading with 52% and the PCs were behind at 29%. That is a shift of 19 points 
a gain of 19 for the Liberals, a drop of 19 for the Conservatives since 2017. Now, that is enormous. In the last election, the Liberals lost three seats in Cape Breton. Two went to the PCs, one went to the New Democrats. So if we're looking at these regional numbers, if nothing is really shifting all that much in in Halifax or rural Nova Scotia, that would mean that with the extra seats the Liberals could win in Cape Breton, their majority government that they won last time would be bigger this time. So this will be something to watch. This isn't the first poll to suggest that the Liberals have regained support in Cape Breton. They lost a lot in the last election. The federal Liberals also took a, a, a bit of a beating in Cape Breton in 2019. Maybe things are shifting there. And if that's the case, uh, the Liberals look like they're in a pretty good spot. All right, for the questions uh, of the week this time, I, uh, as always, really appreciate uh, those of you who are, are giving me questions on, on Twitter. Uh, they're really good questions, and I, I have to choose which ones I want to answer or feel I can, uh, but I really do appreciate it, so keep them coming. And uh, if I don't get your, to your question in one week, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll be able to get to it in a future week if you have new questions. First one was from Fraser Fathers on Twitter. He said, what is the impact on repeat campaigns on local races? For example, all three ridings in Essex County have rematches from 2019, which had some upsets. Do incumbents that lost tend to regain seats? Do challengers that lost do better the second time? I thought this was a really interesting question because it's something that I've also thought a lot about. If you're a, a sitting MP who is defeated, if you run again in the next election, try to get your seat back, does that give your party a better chance than it? If someone new came in, if you were beaten last time, does that mean voters aren't going to vote for you again in the future? Now, Essex County is in Ontario. The seats in this case are Windsor West, Windsor, Tecumseh, and Essex. These are interesting races here. They're primarily liberal New Democrat. Windsor West, Brian Massey is the NDP MP. He's been there for a long time. Sandra Pupatello is running again for the liberal. She's a former Ontario liberal cabinet minister. She was the runner-up to Kathleen Wynne in the Ontario Liberal leadership race back in 2013. Um, so she was a bit of a star candidate last time. And so it's interesting to see that she's trying again. Often the star candidates don't come back to run again if if they weren't successful. In Windsor-Tecumseh, you have the Liberal Eric Kuzmerchek. He is running against the NDP's Cheryl Hardcastle. She was the former NDP MP who was beaten in 2019. And then in Essex, this is one where it's conservative NDP, Chris Lewis of the Conservatives up against uh, Tracy Ramsey of the NDP. She was defeated uh, last time as well. So those are three races where the same two main players are running again as last time. Now, does this help? Does this hurt? My gut would say that it helps. If you're a candidate that was able to grow a party support in the last election, like Sandra Pupatello in Windsor West, but fail to win, presumably if you run again, you'll at least start from that base that you had last time. If someone else came in for the Liberals in that riding, probably wouldn't do as well as uh, Sandra Pupatello. And for the NDP, former MPs, Cheryl Hardcastle and Tracy Ramsey, they have name recognition and give the NDP a lot more credibility to try to take back Windsor, Tecumseh, and Essex. Um, but you know, it's against a generic candidate. If they could find another star candidate, maybe they would do better. Anyway, I looked at the 2019 election to try to get an idea of what impact this has. So in 2019, there was 83 defeated MPs who did not run again. So this is uh, an MP, think of someone like Megan Leslie, 
she was the NDP MP in Halifax. She was defeated in 2015. In 2019, she didn't run to try to win that seat back. Now, of those 83 seats, the party reclaimed only seven of them. So only 8% of the time was a party able to win back a seat that they had lost in the previous election with a new person. There was 22 defeated MPs who did run again. So these are people like Jack Harris, defeated in uh, St. John's East in 2015. He did run again in 2019 to win that seat back uh, for the Indian Democrats, and he was successful. But of the 22 who did that, only three were able to reclaim their seat. So about 14%. These are very small sample sizes, so it's really hard to say what we can say about it. But either way, it's hard to win a seat back after you lost it in the previous election. That's what these two cases show. Uh, so does it help? Does it hurt? I'm guessing it's more of a case-by-case basis. If you're an unpopular MP that was defeated, there's probably a reason for that. And if you try again, you won't be reelected. If you were a popular MP who was defeated because of a wave of support for uh, the challenger party, then if that wave has receded, then being on the ballot again might actually help. Next question is from Jared Wasson. With the announcement that Derek Sloan is creating a new political party, what are the chances that this hurts the federal conservative vote, if at all? If at all is probably the important thing there. Yes, Derek Sloan was in Alberta speaking at some event, and he said that he was going to be starting a new party. He couldn't tell people what the name was, but uh, it was going to be starting uh, this new party, and people were going to be very excited about it. Okay, come on. At some point, the conservative movement has to not have all these little splinter parties. The Maverick Party out west, the People's Party, Maxim Bernier, and now, apparently, this Derek Sloan vehicle. I don't think that Derek Sloan is going to have a big impact, and there's a few reasons for that. One, let's look at the example of Maxim Bernier and the People's Party. Maxim Bernier, whatever you thought of him, was a former cabinet minister, and he finished second in the 2017 conservative leadership race. He had a very strong hold in his seat of Bose. The People's Party, with Maxim Bernier as their leader, at the, at the federal leaders' debate in English and French, he could not win his seat back, and the PPC couldn't clear 2% of the vote nationwide. Derek Sloan is a first-term MP, only ever been an opposition backbencher. He was not a frontbencher for the Conservatives by any stretch. He finished last in the Conservative leadership race and did not particularly shine in it. It could have an impact in some individual ridings if Derek Sloan's party, whatever it's called, is able to peel off 1% or 2% of the vote, but... The People's Party barely did that in the last election. There was only a handful of writings where they could have potentially had a role in preventing the Conservatives from winning. I really don't think this is going to be any stronger than Maxim Bernier's party. And I suppose if you don't win a Conservative leadership, you have to go start a new party. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a good pattern for the Conservatives. They might want to make sure that their leadership contestants next time um, stay in the fold. Uh, another question, uh, again, related to the Conservatives from Josh McMillan. Are there many ridings where a green collapse would actually hurt the Conservatives, shifting swaths of voters to the Liberals and the NDP? Yeah, there definitely is. If the new, if the Greens do see their support collapse uh, in the next election because of everything we've seen happen for the last few weeks, uh, a lot of it's going to go to the Liberals and a lot of it's going to go to the NDP. Uh, it hurts the Conservatives in two ways. Uh, one, there's a few seats that they won by narrow margins last time that if enough of the green vote peels off to the Liberal or the NDP candidate, they could lose them. In British Columbia, for example, Port Moody, Coquitlam, Cloverdale, Langley City, and South Surrey, White Rock, the Greens took about 6 to 8% of the vote in those ridings. 
and the margins of victory for the Conservatives were five points or less. So not a lot of that green vote has to go to the Liberals uh, or the NDP to prevent the Conservative MP from being re-elected. In Ontario, there's a couple of those as well, the same kind of situation, the same share of the vote for the Greens, and the same close margins, Flamborough, Glanbrook, Northumberland, Peterborough, South, Kenora. It also limits the Conservatives' potential to win new seats. There's a few seats they're targeting in Atlantic Canada. The most obvious one would be Fredericton, which was won by the Greens. The Conservatives finished second. Uh, but now that Janet Atwin, the former Green MP who crossed the floor to the Liberals, is running as a Liberal, really probably makes it all the harder for the Conservatives to win that seat. But there's a couple other ones where the Greens had 10% of the vote or more, so a big chunk of the vote. And the Conservatives were short by five points or less, Cumberland, Colchester in Nova Scotia, Miramichi, Grand Lake, and St. John Rosse in New Brunswick, and Egmont in PEI. If the if some of that green vote, uh, you know, five points, goes to the Liberals, then it just makes the mountain all the higher for the Conservatives to climb in those seats. In Ontario and British Columbia, there's a couple of those as well. Again, a big share of the vote for the Greens, combined with a, a small margin in the last election, that the Conservatives need to overcome, Richmond Hill, Kitchener-Conestoga, Coquitlam-Port, Coquitlam, the writing's so nice, they named it twice, and Yukon. Um, these were all very close writings. The Greens had a big chunk of the vote, and uh, the Conservatives can't afford any of that to go anywhere else. Uh, the last question, uh, to go back to the Nova Scotia election, this is from Devon. Everyone seems to agree the Nova Scotia Liberals will win this election. So with that being said, what are the best and worst case scenarios for the two opposition parties as things stand? Now, Will the Liberals win this election? Uh, the polls are good for them, but, you know, can't rule out the other parties uh, automatically. But based on where things are, uh, I did a seat ratings for uh, all the 55 ridings in Nova Scotia uh, last month. The latest poll from Main Street would not shift things too much, but, but in those seat ratings... Uh, for the progressive conservatives, I said they had six ridings that they were safe, that it was very unlikely they could lose them. So you would put their floor at six. And if you added the seats that I said were likely PC wins, they were leaning PC, or they were toss-ups that included the, the PCs, they were in the running, then their best case goes up to 19. If you add some of the leaning seats where the liberals were favored, but if things go badly for the liberals, maybe the PCs can, can win them, you could bump them up to maybe 23. Now, that's still short of the 28 you need for majority government in Nova Scotia. So the PCs, um, unless things radically shift, you know, the best they can hope for is maybe keeping the Liberals to a minority. For the New Democrats, the worst case scenario, I had just one seat that I deemed safe. Uh, seeing the, the latest Main Street poll, which suggests the New Democrats are, are a bit more competitive in Halifax, it's, I don't think their floor is one seat. Uh, their best case, though, I had it at seven. If you add some of those leaning seats that look more likely to go to the Liberals, but the NDP is at least a factor there, their best case scenario might be nine. So I think that's what we're talking about here for the two parties. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe the polls will shift over this campaign. We have seen in, in uh, elections in Atlantic Canada that the polls can sometimes get a little tighter as the campaign goes on. And the party that is in front sometimes does not really match the numbers that we've seen. So uh, something to keep an eye on. Every week I delve into Canada's electoral history as part of the Every Election Project. This is my attempt to cover every election that's ever happened in Canada. 
With a campaign going on as we speak in Nova Scotia, I thought I'd take the clock back, not as far back as I have in the last couple of weeks, just to the Nova Scotia provincial election held on July 27th, 1999, so some 22 years ago this week. In 1998, the Liberals under Russell McClellan were reduced to a razor-thin minority government. McClellan had taken over for John Savage in 1997, so he was a new face leading the Liberal government at the time. But the campaign did not go well for the Liberals. John Savage had uh, become very unpopular and was sapping Liberal support. Russell McClellan really couldn't turn that tide. And the Liberals emerged from that election with 19 seats, putting them at a tie with the NDP under Robert Chisholm. The PCs under John Hamm, not the John Hamm of Mad Men, I assure you, captured uh, 14 seats. So this was a minority government, very close between the three parties. The popular vote was really close. The Liberals had 35%. The New Democrats had just a little bit less than 35%. And the PCs had just under 30%. So really a three-way race that uh, is about as close as it gets. Now, this minority government did not last very long. They had the support of the PCs in the legislature, but 16 months later, after the 1998 election, the Liberals were defeated on on their budget when the PCs teamed up with the NDP to bring down the government. The Tories wanted to see a, a balanced budget. The Liberals did not deliver on that, and so the PCs had to pull the plug and they couldn't uh, continue to support a government uh, that was continuing to push Nova Scotia deeper into deficit. This meant that the leaders of the three parties were the same as they were in 1998. Russell McClellan of the Liberals, John Hamm of the PCs, and Robert Chisholm of the NDP. Hamm was actually the veteran of the three. He had been leader since 1995, only uh, four years previously. So these three leaders were all relatively new when it came to uh, leadership in Nova Scotia. At the beginning of the campaign, the polls suggested that the three parties, the three leaders, were more or less in a dead heat. So not that much different from where things were in 1998. McClellan was not particularly dynamic on camera, and that was all the more so the case when he's compared to the more youthful, energetic Robert Chisholm of the NDP. John Hamm had this more country earnestness about him. Uh, might have made him a bit more trustworthy for a lot of people. Campaign really pitted balanced budgets against health care in a province at the time that was crippled by debt. The NDP under Robert Chisholm, they ran a good campaign, but at the end of it, It was revealed that he had a 22-year-old drunk driving conviction. This was contrary to what he had said earlier in the campaign when he was asked whether he had any criminal convictions in the past. This really undercut the NDP at the very end of the campaign in what was seen as a campaign about credibility. There was a debate where Russell McClellan did not do particularly well when a question was put to him by him about whether he would balance the budget, and McClellan just did not answer the question, just had dead radio silence for a few seconds. And by the end of the campaign, the Tories were starting to get a bump in the polls. And there was expectation that while it might be close, the PCs could potentially emerge with a win, maybe even a majority government. That is what happened. The PCs won 30 seats, gaining 16 from the last election. They took 39% of the vote, up nine points from 1998. Both the New Democrats and the Liberals both lost eight seats apiece, dropping to 11 seats and took 30% of the vote. Uh, for the Liberals, that was a drop of about six points. For the NDP, about five points. So the PCs were really able to benefit from a drop from both the New Democrats and the Liberals. The PCs had been swept out of Halifax in 1998, but they returned to win seats in the city in 1999. The NDP took most of the rest. The Liberals lost seats in Halifax. The PCs dominated everywhere except Cape Breton, which delivered most of the Liberal caucus. So we had a legislature that was a largely Liberal caucus from Cape Breton, an NDP caucus from Halifax, and the PCs, the only party who had seats in every part of the province. 
Now, John Hamm did balance the budget in his first term in office, but his majority government was reduced to a minority in the election of 2003, and he would remain Premier of Nova Scotia until 2006, when he resigned the post and was succeeded by Rodney MacDonald. PCs were re-elected to another minority government in 2006, before being defeated in 2009 by the New Democrats under Daryl Dexter. And that's it for the RIT podcast for this week. As always, thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the RIT.ca. Your support is really, really appreciated. If you want to subscribe but you haven't yet, you can head over to the site to do that. A subscription gets you full access to all the content on the RIT.ca. Now, I want to wish everyone a great long weekend, and I will see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.